named after the Greek goddess of dance and chorus, and also an allusion to historian Sally Baines's seminal book on postmodern dance, Terpsichorean Sneakers, Terpsichore is a platform celebrating female dancers, choreographers, and bodies in motion, curated by me, dance critic and writer Emily May. Posting information, images, and videos of female dance pioneers, both past and present, on a daily basis on our Instagram account, Terpsichore has now started its very own podcast, where I will be interviewing leading women from the dance industry about their lives, careers, and the female artists that have inspired them. I'm delighted to welcome acclaimed Birmingham-based choreographer Rosie Kay to the podcast, who has been a great mentor, influence, and friend to me since I was 12 years old. Born in Scotland and trained at London Contemporary Dance School, Rosie had an international performance career before founding her eponymous company in 2004. Known for creating relevant, important, political and meaningful dance that responds to contemporary society, Rosie has developed a diverse oeuvre of pieces, from five and ten soldiers, both of which were inspired by extensive research into the British military, to MK Ultra, a deep dive into the world of the Illuminati in collaboration with renowned documentary filmmaker Adam Curtis. Throughout coronavirus lockdown, Rosie has been working on her new adaptation of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, as well as a triple bill of self-performed solos. As the production marks 21 years since her first ever solo show and five years since she last performed, I thought it was the perfect time to catch up with Rosie to reflect on her diverse career. Well, hello, Rosie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. It's a bit grey and wet in Birmingham, but I've been for a walk and I've done some of my fascia stretching, which is a new thing for me. I'm really hoping to sign off from work today and actually have a Christmas holiday. Yeah, completely. But you've been working really hard this year, obviously differently because of the whole corona crisis. But that's what we'd like to talk to you a bit about later on. First of all, we'd like to look a bit further back. And I was wondering if we could start at the very beginning for you and ask you what your first ever experience of dance was and how you became interested in the art form as a career path. Yeah, gosh. So we moved from the borders in Scotland, which is a very sort of horse riding kind of place, outdoorsy place. And I remember like riding from the age of two, which is, seems ridiculous. And we moved to the southeast of England and it was very different. And my mum said, you can't go horse riding because you're too little. Uh, and my sister was going horse riding. What do you want to do? And I said I wanted to dance. So we fortunately found a really good dance school that was very creative and imaginative. And I actually remember one of my first sort of lessons. It must have been around when I first started. And we were just doing really simple stuff like pretending to be a cat <laughs> to music. But it was really transformative for me. I was a quite shy little girl and I sort of struggled with fitting in and moving house so much but dance was always this place of pure creativity and the combination of the music and the dance and the imagination just struck me straight away and my mum says that I was I was quite fussy when we moved to Devon we went around different ballet schools and there was a school we turned up and it was a posh building and we went in and all the girls were dressed beautifully and mum said, would oh, you want to go here? And I said, well, no, it looks really nice, but they're not actually properly dancing. <laughs> so <laughs> this was when I was like seven or something. <laughs> so I always had like really clear ideas. I, we ended up in a, you know, in the back of a church uh, hall, 
but with an amazing teacher, June B. Lee, who's a huge influence in my life. And, and she just worked so hard. So from the age of about seven or eight, I was doing four or five dance classes a week and working hard. And that's brilliant. If you get someone like that young, that gets you through that difficult teenage phase. And so after this, how did you end up deciding that you wanted to have a performance career and that you wanted to study at London Contemporary Dance School? Yes, it's odd because when we moved to Edinburgh, I sort of struggled with keeping dance going. I was doing like RAD and jazz and I was into singing and acting. So actually I went with a friend to an audition to a musical theatre school and to my great surprise got in. And this was when I was around 16, 17 years old. So I went and auditioned for all the big musical theatre schools and, and incredibly got in. At which point I'd sort of managed to convince my teachers and my parents that if I was good enough to get in, maybe I should give it a go. I started to think about the actual on the other side. And while I'd liked musicals when I was younger, I'd really gone off them by my late teenage years and I was very interested in art, in music, in painting, in history and that's when I discovered contemporary dance as a as a physical technique. I met a teacher at Dance Base, Denver Pascal, who taught me my first contemporary class and I suddenly went, aha, there's this art form that combines everything I'm interested in but is really serious as well. It's a serious art form. So I get the dancing but it's taking me somewhere else out the other side. So that's when I then applied to London Contemporary and that was the only school I wanted to go to at that point. What was your experience like of training there? Do you think training in that school specifically has really influenced your career? and how it developed? Yes, I had good and bad times at London Contemporary. I think the contextual studies were absolutely first rate. The music, we did gender studies in the early 90s. I found the class system, like the system of doing class, much harder and kind of a bit mysterious. (laughs) It's that thing where where you're imposing a technique upon a body my body has always been a little bit tricky for dance actually it's hypermobile yet very strong and I never looked quite right <laughs> and I've been sort of I've been thinking about that that this idea that you're meant to look like a dancer to be a dancer is like so all-encompassing and then I got very ill in my second year with glandular fever that turned into chronic fatigue syndrome and while that was sort of devastating it actually was about the best thing that could have happened to me because I had to take a year off, come back, repeat a year, and I just got myself sorted out. I just started to realise you couldn't do an eight-hour training a day and go out and live like other students. You had to become a professional athlete as well as a, a dancer, and that was a really good grounding, and my life sort of shut down, and I just became completely focused about getting through my training. And I think that paid off because I got a job before I before I finished. Most of us now know you as a choreographer and all the work you do, but you obviously started as a performer and dancing across Europe. Could you maybe, for the listeners, give a brief overview of some of your performance career? Sure. So I was offered a job with Polish Dance Theatre. I was training with Paulina Wyczykowska and her mother, Eva Wyczykowska, is the artistic director. And so she saw me perform and offered me a soloist contract in Poland straight from college, which was just 
a dream come true, especially as my family history is Polish as well. I had an amazing nearly two years with Polish Dance Theatre, dancing some really big roles like Madame de Travel in Dangerous Liaisons, as well as a lot more contemporary repertoire as well, and, and work that was devised on us as dancers. So it was an incredible introduction to big company life. Big in terms of like, you know, 25 dancers plus support crew, opera houses. It was a really important art form in Poland so we were always performing to big full houses and it, it felt really proper it was it was incredible I left Polish dance theatre and I pursued some of my own solo work which afforded me a little bit time in New York I was desperate to go and look at my hero Merce Cunningham and 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 dance at the Graham studios and things like that and I started doing some solo work I then moved to Berlin and I got a job with German choreographer and we did some work at Academy de Kunst. I ended up moving to France for other reasons and did some dancing there, but it was kind of more tricky because of the employment status. So I would come back and I'd work in the UK. Sometimes I was working with Green Candle, which incredible dance and education company. Uh, run by Fergus Early. So it was, it was really weird. I was going from like avant-garde German Berlin theatres to children's work to then sort of solo work and some work in Bézières in France. But I started to kind of run a wine business, which was meant to sort of help financially, but actually running any business is just totally all-encompassing. So actually I was spending a lot of my time driving around Europe with wine. <laughs> and it all got very complicated and it was all a bit of a disaster and I sort of ended up homeless and jobless and penniless <laughs> at which point having losing all my possessions and I literally had to phone my dad and say you have to help me get home and he was furious <laughs> with me I remember I remember this is terrible that Donald Hutero wrote a review of my first ever show that said uh, my choreography seemed borrowed and not coming from deeply my own experiences and there was something in it that, that, that struck me that was really true I was so focused about dance I hadn't lived and so actually through this sort of first five six years of my career I was dancing but my goodness I was living and then I got to this really really low point and that was the point where I was like right I might now think about being a choreographer I might have more to say now than when I was just a dancer who wanted to be a choreographer now I was a, a woman who had things to say and would you say that really kick-started when you moved to Birmingham to take up the artist-in-residence position at Dance Exchange? Yeah, I had a bit of a sort of like flipping back and forth phase and trying to sort of see if I could maybe live in Scotland. I was quite interested in being based back where I'd, I'd been to school, but that didn't quite work out. And so, yeah, I saw this job advertised as the first dance artist-in-residence that was a partnership with Dance Exchange, the Hippodrome and Birmingham Royal Ballet. And there was performing, there was working with other choreographers, there was teaching and there was managing yourself as an artist. And I think that whole combination of like just, just understanding how to deal with schools, understanding the curriculum, um, understanding lesson planning, safeguarding. So it was all that other side as well as the practical side. I thought that, that was a good move and it gave me a year in a city I didn't know and I moved to Birmingham literally with just a suitcase and thought well I'll be gone in a year. What a weird place, it's just full of expressways. Like where, 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 I couldn't even find the city centre at first. 
And then, unbelievably, it will be 18 years next month since I moved. There was a decision at one point where I was like, okay, I can either keep moving or I can stay still and get my work to move me so I can have a bit of stability and then I can really focus on creation and touring. And well, I'm really glad you did stay in Birmingham because that's how I managed to meet you. While you've been in Birmingham, you've created so many amazing works and as you said, they all seem really influenced by things that you really want to say, whether it's exploring religion with There Is Hope or the military and war with Five Soldiers. Because this is the Terpsichore podcast and we're exploring women in dance specifically, I wanted to ask you, about creating as a female choreographer and this concept of maybe creating from a female point of view which I'm interested in because I think some people don't necessarily like to put gender front and center in this way or make people always be categorized as a female choreographer rather than just a choreographer but I feel like it's quite important for a lot of your work especially with Five Soldiers I read a review in which they say war from a female perspective packs a punch and I feel like the way you entered into this traditionally hyper-masculine context is very important how would you respond to that would you say that you feel like you create from a female point of view as a choreographer yeah it's really interesting I think when I started out and particularly sort of training through the 90s I think we thought that a lot of these wars had been won and equality was there for the taking and of course a lot of my heroines in dance were were females whether they're Mary Vigman and Valeska Gert um, or Palooka or Graham in America and I I think when I was starting out, I would probably have not said that it was from a female perspective because I think there was that sense maybe 20 years ago of wanting to be seen, you know, seen as a choreographer, not being so gender specific to be valued on your own terms with the work that you made. You didn't want to be pigeonholed into the female choreographer's strand. Now, as I'm older and the world isn't as equal as I thought it was going to be, I'm now much more open and passionate and vocal about that there's not enough female perspectives on stage. And actually the whole system is rigged not just to see male, male stories, but also to award male stories and to even commission and programme choreographies made by men about men's look on the world. This is so big and systematic that I have to sort of really say, state my case and state it clearly. I use myself in my work a lot, and so I would put myself front and centre and allow myself to be vulnerable and to sort of show my work, how I was doing it. So that was a statement early on. But then when we got to something like, you know, Five Soldiers, the story with this is I always wanted to do the stuff you're not allowed to talk about in British dinner parties. You're not allowed to talk about war, religion or politics. I think we could possibly add in sex and race and gender now as well. (laughs) The list is getting longer. (laughs) I wanted to look at a subject matter that was really utterly terrifying, very alien, but somehow I kind of had found this way through, which was that they train bodies. The army train male bodies to carry out war, and then they have to repair those bodies because those bodies get injured. And so there was this kind of like spark moment for me when I thought that despite all the technologies, all the war, all the politics, the actual place of all wars, whether we're talking about the Roman times or the Second World War or 
Afghanistan 10 years ago, the place of war is still on the human body, which kind of seems quite unbelievable and barbaric, but that's still the way that we try and solve political, economic and nation-state issues. So that was my way in, into getting into this sort of hyper-masculine environment. So the battalion I ended up joining was 4th Battalion, the Rifles, which was completely all-male. Women were allowed to apply about three years ago, and the first woman that actually got through the training was just last year. So back 12 years ago, I was thinking, oh, the army's 10% female, I'll meet some women. No, 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 no. This was an all-male environment, officers, soldiers... I was quite an unusual species to arrive there. The dance training really helps. You know, you've got to wear the right costume and be in the right place at the right time and you've got to pick up endless hidden secret messages. Um, You know how, like, when you work with a choreographer, you've got to kind of know when they're annoyed or when they're... It's like reading their mind or... You're like, I said this arm, but I meant that arm. That's that's right, that's right. There's a lot of that because it's so hierarchical. But yet also you've got to be offering stuff all the time as a soldier. So I just was wearing the right uniform in the right place at the right time, big exercises, keeping up with them, staying away, staying funny, telling them to F off if they were rude. That was really important. So at first when I turned up, they were all like macho posturing and getting all their weaponry out (laughs) and just really terrifying me. And I just decided to have a very poker face, make a joke if I can and always answer back. And that was like the right approach, just just, just answer back. And, and just keep putting myself forward like I want to I want to see this I want to join in and so by the time you've done four days and nights living in a ditch in Dartmoor and all sorts of like bonkers battle exercises I mean really bonkers it's so interesting and it's very choreographic and it's boring and cold and then it's really exciting and terrifying and then it's boring and cold again by the time you've gone through that people just start chatting to you and if you ask the right questions I think if I was a man they might have accepted me a bit quicker at first but they might not have opened up as much. There's a more competitive atmosphere between men. I think I could ask questions about their personal lives, about their world that that they see, that they live in, the military world versus the civilian world. I think they could tell me more because I was a woman in such a strange environment. There was a confidant sort of sense going on that sort of I would nurture a little bit and become sort of pally a little bit with people. So interesting. Obviously, so we were talking about the female experience through your work, but also it's not just the work you put on stage, but you do a lot of mentoring with many young and emerging individuals in dance and women in particular. I, as one, feel very lucky to have had you as a mentor and friend since I was 12 years old. But to move away from myself your dancers project that you recently did is a prime example where you commissioned works off three female dancers that you've worked with many times on projects and I wanted to ask you why it's so important for you to invest so much in the next generation of specifically women and your approach to artistic mentorship gosh no it's been like a big part of my life I mean I guess like I said earlier if you get a good teacher early on that can really steer both your career but it can sort of steer your life a little bit as well you can be really inspired and it can instill some qualities that are so important so I was the first course leader in the West Midlands the cat scheme and I remember saying to you guys like you know my my job is to basically make sure that I can offer you a job once you graduate (laughs) and recently Iona Maguire has joined the cast of Romeo and Juliet and you know she's had to audition fair and square and, and win that place but it's amazing and then there's also two young men who were both involved in five soldiers education engagement work one in Wolverhampton and one in Swindon that are also cast members so I kind of try and stand by 
by my word on this. Yeah, the Dancers Project, well, it was such a shame because of COVID. We had made a commitment that we would still pay the dancers despite cancelling the whole of our rehearsal period and the whole run of Edinburgh Festival Fringe which was really sad. But we also were, were sort of listening and staying in touch with them and we could feel their frustration of just not being able to dance and being able to move. I was in the midst of sort of preparing the solo and Romeo and Juliet, so I didn't want to choreograph on them just for the point of choreographing. So it was really thinking about some of the dancers were very much already making their own work or experimenting and teaching and creating lots of material, but other members of that company were less sure. So it just felt like a really nice way that they could try out ideas with each other. We just opened up enough that they could work together in a studio, safe distance. They would say that they didn't have enough time to prepare. I mean, that's that's the world of choreography. Sometimes you've got to just make stuff, you know, especially in a commercial sense. So they had a little bit of time to come up with a proposal and then they all had a week each. We had to then postpone the sharing and then we did that a month or so later when it was a bit safer again. It was so exciting, it was so amazing to see them find their own voices, make their own work, present their own work. And then the other really interesting thing is I've been supporting one of the company members in writing her first funding application as well. Because there's that whole other side, which we've talked about a lot, Emily, which is the business side, the administrative side, the goal setting the management of yourself in a career trajectory like you say has has no ladder and I think for women particularly we really need to help support each other and show where these invisible ladders might be and I'm sort of a big believer in like self-producing equipping yourself with the skills especially early days as a choreographer you need to be able to understand how to light a show how to music edit how to behave in a theatre space how to talk to technicians how to get what you want in a nice way how to build a relationship with the theatre. So many people seem to think that that's someone else's job or there'll be this amazing producer that comes down from heaven and sort of leads you through the funding and the production. But actually, I started out by doing all of that myself and then building support. You've got to kind of prove yourself for other people to want to join you on this journey and you've got to be able to say this is my vision and this is how I do it and that has stood me in such amazing stead there's been some almighty shows like the Commonwealth Games or feature films where I've suddenly had to stop and stand up and say no this isn't happening right I know that this could be better can we sort this out and just having that ability to stand up and halt and be sometimes the only female voice in a team or a sea of men it's a bit scary but if I'm focused on the art and the quality, the rest doesn't matter. That would be daunting for me, not just as a female, but I think in terms of hierarchy of art forms, I think a lot of the time people maybe see dance as the last thing that comes at the bottom. Like I'm thinking if I've ever rehearsed with uh, an orchestra or musicians or whatever, they... I don't know, this idea of precedent or film, I would be very scared of like interrupting a film set or something. I love like big sort of outside commissions and, and I've really enjoyed those and I, and I learn a lot from them. But there's a reason why a lot of the stuff I do, I'm the creator and I'm the generator of both the concept, the way it's managed and the team because there's nothing I hate more than seeing people not treated very well and I like to have the correct conditions to make the work I want to make. I used to be kind of, oh, maybe I should be looking for a commission here 
here and commission there. But actually, I really enjoy being in the environment that I choose to be in and creating that environment myself and being in charge of the atmosphere, you know, like the weather system of that environment. I have actually deliberately avoided opera because of the status of the dance and the choreographer. I find that a little bit difficult. When I do work in opera or theatre, I tend to have a very collaborative relationship with the director so that they understand I'm coming in as an artist from dance rather than a gun for hire. No, that's really interesting. We were talking about mentorship there a little bit back. I, I wanted to ask you as well who some of your mentors were as you've progressed your career. Despite my father being quite sceptical and probably a bit bemused by me going into dance, my dad became quite a big mentor in a business sense. Obviously we have a personal relationship but we also have quite a business-minded relationship. He used to work in the paper industry in big manufacturing and he was one of the youngest paper mill managers you know in the in the 80s but he really understands the management of people and treating people ethically and fair but also he's got this little bit hard-nosed money-making side to him and so I found that really helpful when I was setting up first as a limited company. I have had an amazing friend called Angela Maxwell again she's a businesswoman but she's got a particular like affiliation in the arts. She took me on quite early and she just kicks my ass. <laughs> she really does. She's like completely like you got to get more ambitious. You got and, and she just like gives me that real like come on Rosie you can do this more more more. She's been brilliant. Most recently I've had a relationship with Emily Molnar who was the artistic director of Bally BC and she's now the new artistic director of Netherlands Dance Theatre. She was absolutely brilliant at a time where I was shifting from being the sort of sole creator director to becoming a regularly funded organisation of which I'm an employee it may still hold my name but it's a slightly different relationship so that was quite difficult to shift my thinking to running an organisation rather than just it all being about my creativity she's been really helpful and supportive and I went over to Vancouver and actually it was dancing with her company doing class made me really want to get back on stage again that's an amazing transition because I wanted to now talk to you about your return to the stage after five years which is going to be for your new solo adult female dancer I would say for your new solo it's for your triple bill absolute solo two which marks 21 years since your first ever solo show you mentioned Emily Molnar there as being the initial trigger for you to want to get back on stage but I was wondering what some of the initial inspirations were for you to start working on this new solo adult female dancer because the other two I believe are already created works last year what would that be 2019 I was just sort of feeling like something was really missing in me I think I particularly had quite a traumatic birth with my son Gabriel I'd had one big show afterwards actually at the proms in the Royal Albert Hall and I just was like that's it I'm calling it a day I'm not putting myself through this stress anymore I think I'd had a real shock that my body hadn't just bounced back it had changed and it had changed sort of forever and I was giving myself some time to deal with it and then there was suddenly a point where I was feeling no this body I'm now okay about this body but now I want to say something about being an older dancer so that was the starting point and then uh, did a little bit of dancing with Ballet BC and then I was thrust onto the stage in the US tour earlier this year where one of the dancers visas was refused and we arrived in the west coast of America for a three-week tour with only four or five soldiers. So I had to go. I mean, there was no one else. I remember seeing you share the picture of yourself in uniform on uh, Twitter or something. I was like, 
what's happened? I couldn't believe it that you were going on stage. And at first I was like, oh, it's it's a it's special thing that you're doing for the US tour or something. And then I found out that you'd had such a difficult decision. Quite a shock. I was doing drill in my bedroom all through the night once we arrived, you know, with jet lag. We had one day's rehearsal and then we premiered with me as a senior female officer. <laughs> While I, my body wasn't at all where I'd want it to be, I mean, I was dealing with a trapped nerve in my neck. I was very worried about my two knee injuries, a lower back injury, a, a core that wasn't a core. However, there was something in me. The first show, I was in a washing machine. But by the second show, I was like, hey, I'm going to try not to steal the show. <laughs> you know, because there's, there's something else that happens, like being completely in real time with lots of eyes on you. Also knowing the show so well being able to sort of pull focus but then also like push focus onto people show reactions show like an internal world while also performing exquisitely an external world I was just like yeah I'm really really experienced about this I may be 20 years older than some of these soldier dancers around me but I can get through firefight in fact I'm the one like shouting come on because I've got this madness inside of me <laughs> So I got back to the UK and I actually started really slowly. I started on like a full spinal kind of rehab course, a stretching course, just building up walking. I kind of took it right back because I was like, I know, I'm, I know where I want my body to get to, but I can't demand that it's a professional dancer straight away. It isn't it's different and and actual the spinal realignment was probably the most important thing to do because it stopped being about what I was gonna what I would look like and it all became about how the body felt and that was the amazing thing with lockdown just going in three four times a week I hired a little Quaker hall around the corner so generous let me use it th three mornings a week all the windows open hard wooden floor but it was a space and it became a sort of sacred space of warming up doing my ballet bar every day became such a ritual it was something very special about being in a Quaker hall and I know a bit about the Quakers but I've never sort of been in their environments and when they pray they sit together and they wait for God to speak to them. And that sense of waiting and listening was how I approached making my next new work. I knew I wanted it to be about me. I knew I wanted it to be about my life. So I was doing a lot of writing. I was sort of writing my own autobiography. And then I was trying to distill that into very short, sort of almost poems that opened something but didn't give too much away. And then I just started to build up a structure. So there are seven pieces of text and there are seven dances. And some dances are very clearly related to what I've just said. And others, the words just hint at something. And the dance actually tells you, but I would probably probably never say it out loud what what this is actually about and then at the end it's just a big celebration of actually dancing is joy dancing really is joy while it's autobiographical I also believe you're wanting to say something larger or that other people can relate to maybe as well about the female body and the experience of being female on stage and also being an older female body without giving too much away do you know what it is you're trying to say and what are some of the specificities of being a female performer so I talk a bit about why I dance and, and where that 
came from and sometimes that's from places of grief or pain and then I talk about some of the very exciting bonkers things that happened in my life and some of the traumatic things so being my hypnold in a bar or being abducted once in a taxi or being assaulted by my ex-partner you know these are really traumatic things that you take deeply into your soul and into your body I do talk about childbirth and the experience of childbirth and then I have quite a kind of extreme solo that's partly about childbirth and I don't remember I didn't have labour I had an emergency c-section I was just under general anaesthetic I still don't know how babies come out but it's also about the experience of taking huge amounts of morphine in these ridiculous situations and literally losing my mind a couple of days after giving birth I remember my husband was just kind of like whoa you've lost the plot now (laughs) okay we're gonna have to come off the painkillers and and deal with whatever's going on right now and then I actually do reveal things about like the first First time I was sexually harassed on the street, I was a child. Actually, I know from post-show talks and talking to women, literally almost every woman I know has some story of sexual assault, sexual abuse. Every woman can tell you why they don't go out jogging at night, why they don't feel safe, how they carry keys in their hands. And yet still we're in a world where people are sort of shocked by that. And so I wanted to say something about just being a woman and having a woman's body. It sounds bizarre, it's still sort of taboo to talk really in depth about your birth experiences, talking about menstruation, talking about bleeding, talking about all these things. It's still taboo, it is. And I was just like, well, I better lead by example and be open and honest. I'm not trying to hector anyone, I'm not trying to lecture anyone. Like I say, the words are chosen to be quite short and succinct. You know, people say it's very brave, but I just wanted to be honest and grown up. (laughs) If I am, you know, I, I do have those skills and I'm really grateful to my body to be actually, you know, it really does want to perform and it really does want to tell these stories. I think ultimately it's really enjoyable. You come through, it's got a journey. I don't leave you in the depth of guilt or pain or despair. It's got to be like, and we dance, you know, and life carries on. It's all right. Obviously it's your return to the stage as an older dancer. With regards to this, I wanted to ask you how important it is for us to see older performers or women, not only on stage, but also in the media. Yes, yes. And older women really do have a different perspective and I've always been very admiring of particularly sort of older feminists. It's strange isn't it because you spend so much of your early childhood and teens and 20s sort of dealing with the places you're put as a young woman and then you have this little tiny middle period <laughs> where you've got huge pressure like are you gonna have a baby or not are you gonna have a baby because you, you're like oh time's running out time's running out and then all of a sudden you're kind of middle-aged and and oh shut up old person. It's just another way to shut women up isn't it? It's just another way that women don't reach out across generations and help each other through all the things we know and we understand and we experience and we can share and yet somehow women are kept separated and aren't helping each other. So I suppose it's just a way through to kind of reach hand out across a generation and say you're going to have a tough time sometimes as a female body on stage. You're going to get looked at and sometimes you're not going to get listened to. You have to A, find your voice. Do you know what I mean? Like First of all, even just finding your voice is difficult. But then to actually speak, that's another thing. And then to actually be listened to. I I There's countless times where I've sat in big production meetings, I'll say something and then a man repeats it and he's listened to. It's just unbelievable. It still really happens. And and you want to be able to, like, help equipped women get on their... I wouldn't say their bulletproof vest, but, you know, go, go, no, 
it's going to be tough, but, you know, get keep going and don't give up and, and keep speaking your truth clearly and you, you'll find your way through. I mean, I did, I mean, to go sort of like more vainly, I did worry about <laughs> putting myself on stage and I had a very strict regime and I didn't go on a diet, but like from 9am I had regimes of walks and swims and Pilates yeah. and class and ballet and rituals and I wanted to make sure that I was dancing as good as I could I'm not going to be doing Grand Allegro anymore but there's other things that are more fun as an older performer you kind of are more comfortable in some respects but there was still the same old insecurities there was even some of the same corrections as when I was 20 years old my rehearsal director who's also chair of my board she's Frances Clark she's amazing such a good rehearsal director but she was saying things that I was like oh this has always been a problem <laughs> yeah, I'm interested as well because, as I said, this is not the only piece that you will be sharing. The whole triple bill has been postponed at the minute because of lockdown, but I'm very excited for when it does finally get to be performed, and I know you've recorded it as well. I wanted to ask about the other two pieces a part of the programme, Patisserie and Artemis Clown, and how you think they sit alongside, complement or contrast your new creation. So Artemis Clown was a piece I made for a beautiful Italian dancer, Gemma Pagnelli, who was at the time with Elliot Smith Dance Company. She's Italian, she's quite classically trained, very beautiful, but also full of all sorts of interesting things inside of her and interesting family history and I met her and we worked together we improvised and then I choreographed this solo using music by Corelli and Kurtak and it was around the time I was in research for Fantasia so it was very much playing about classical form. The solo that I created for her it feels like something out of the sort of Piero 18th century it's a little bit like a, a female clown. She's performing but with each section she unpeels like an onion another layer of what is her true self and every time you think it is her true self you realize oh she's just performing her true self until you kind of reach a point of what could be as true as possible while being a clown <laughs> and then the end is just this kind of like crazy fast pity allegro like sort of joke of like well actually I can do anything and I'll and I'll entertain it and I'll please you and I'll exhaust myself and I'll die for you basically yeah. I really enjoyed learning it. I had to learn it from a really fuzzy video. It was really complicated and difficult to learn from myself. I made really strange movement. And then I was, I was struggling with it because I kept dancing it as me, as this older female dancer. And then suddenly it dawned on me, this was made for a young woman, Italian, beautiful. Just play a role, Rosie, just play a character. And it totally opened up and I, and I really enjoyed it. And I, I really sort of found my little clown inside. It has this ridiculous replica 17th century Puro outfit that our costume maker Sasha went to town with, with like all authentic fabric. I feel like a completely different person in it. So I heard someone say, like, it gives you the authenticity that you did used to dance in big opera houses we believe you now <laughs> I was like oh I didn't know that was being questioned <laughs> but it is it's a virtuosic performance piece that could sit in an opera house you know and it could be a little character study within a huge ballet or something and then the middle piece patisserie is actually a solo from my first ever solo show from 1999 and it was based on anthropological interviews I did with Polish women I had been living in Poland for a year 
And I was so struck by how beautifully presented Polish women were, very stylish, very well made up. I was coming all sort of a bit hip hop and baggy trousers from London in the 90s and it was completely different. So I interviewed as many Polish friends as I could and asked them about how they felt about appearance. And Poland was in quite an interesting space because it was shifting from post-communist to the sort of pre-lead up to EU. So it was like modernising very quickly. It's like the youngest population in Europe. Young people were really questioning what type of future they wanted. So it was a really interesting time for women to be looking at their identities. And I made this solo transcribing exactly what they said, but saying it in an English accent and dancing a little bit like adult dancing female, this text movement blended together, but I'm speaking live. It was when I was sort of studying and reading researching to make the new solo I went back to all my early work and I, I just sort of saw another side of myself I hadn't realized what way I was going down and then all through the wine business and everything I'd sort of stopped and I'd cut that part of my life off and hadn't really rediscovered it so it feels like it sits really nicely as a companion piece 21 years later to adult female dancer I'm analyzing Polish women but really it's also about me <laughs> Amazing. And then, as you say, it's 21 years since this first solo show. This might be a difficult question, but I wanted to ask if looking back now to who you were then as a choreographer and as a human, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself? I mean, like the first thing was I was kind of like, oh, I was really technical. <laughs> it was quite a technical dancer it's clean it's clear I wish I didn't give myself such a hard time but that's not really changed I think that giving yourself a hard time and having these moments of clarity and freedom is part of the dancer's lot it's the curse we have that goes alongside the joy and beauty and freedom we get from our jobs and our bodies and our professions it's funny I, I, I feel what it actually made me feel was just really humble and, and really lucky. There were so many times I could have given up. There were so many times I almost should have given up. <laughs> and the fact yeah. that I didn't, and I'm still on my own in a church hall doing my ballet bar and still feeling, am I delusional? Is anyone going to watch this? And they're also dancing on these big stages and having these opportunities. I'm, I'm just so grateful that my life has been dance. It, it couldn't have been better. Still utterly, utterly obsessed and fascinated by every aspect of dance and dancing and creating dances. It still terrifies me. <laughs> That's quite reassuring in a way as as a as someone's like starting out in their career to know that you know, this kind of imposter syndrome almost never goes away that you saying you oh still questioning yourself are you delusional it's kind of interesting to know that obviously you're someone I look up to so much that that never goes away even when you've achieved so much I know and I don't know if that if is that is that a waste of energy or does that keep me grounded or is that just actually the ephemeral nature of dance you know I sit in my office and I'm doing my workout and you put my sort of little nominations on the wall and is, is it because once you've made a dance it, it disappears it's in those dancers' bodies, it's in those audiences' minds. How does something live on? You know, that's why Five Soldiers has been such a pivotal piece because people still talk about it, people still remember their experiences of watching it. And in this day and age, 
it's really hard to justify something that has no material merit or physical or capitalistic merit and actually it's something very deep and important about being human and we need to defend it massively but it also living in this age makes you feel really insecure about what you're doing I think. I have one very final question which I've been asking everyone I've been interviewing which is that if you could meet and talk to any female dance practitioner from history who would it be and why? The first one I would choose would be Mary Mm -hmm. Vigman because in my dissertation at London Contemporary and when I was researching Mary Vigman it was still part of the course that she hadn't got involved in Nazi philosophy but I was able to draw up German papers and translate them and look at them and like everything almost like Trump there are code words within what she would be saying that are like trigger words that that imply she did believe in Nazi philosophy because she's a really important Monteverita choreographer she she had a nervous breakdown after Laban stole all her ideas and possibly also had some sort of affair we don't know it's a bit mysterious she's an incredible pioneer she reinvented what expressionistic dance was she was incredibly rigorous and disciplined but there is a real shadow and darkness around her culpability in terms of what happened particularly around the Olympics where choreographers were used to kind of bolster the, the national socialist agenda that's always intrigued me because it became a sort of taboo not to talk about it I think there has been more recent research that that's also delved into this territory but I'd like to talk to her because I think even at the moment living within great big schismic shifts of society what you can can't talk about artistic freedom where the money's coming from I can feel more now than maybe 10 years ago how difficult that must be to navigate your way through something like Nazi Germany and so that period still absolutely fascinates me so she would be my one it wouldn't be a comfortable conversation I don't think but I guess that, I guess that puts a context into like why I think female artists are important and what we say is important and our place in the wider social political context is important she's still important to me well thank you so much Rosie that's a really great point to finish have a great day thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you Emily I hope you all enjoyed the third episode of the Terpsichore podcast with the fascinating Rosie Kay. Her triple bill of solos, Absolute Solo 2, which we focused on during the podcast, was scheduled to premiere in November 2020, but has been postponed indefinitely due to the global pandemic. Make sure you keep an eye on Rosie's website and social media channels for news of the new date, as well as for news of the premiere of her reimagining of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, which is currently slated to take place on the 17th of March 2021 at the Birmingham Hippodrome. If you've enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe and leave us a rating and review as it helps other people find us. You can also follow Terpsichore Mag on Instagram or sign up to our newsletter via our website www.terpsichore-mag.com Thanks so much again for listening to the Terpsichore Podcast with me, Emily May. <laughs>